with the will to survive, get paid, eat, and sleep. Some weep, or should I rather say some cry, can't get by. So later on they die, because the strong will survive, the weak will perish. Ignorance is a poison, and knowledge will nourish. I love what I got, and like what I had. I'm glad, not sad, and I don't even get mad. I get even, myself and some others are believing, because these others are my brothers, and perfection we're achieving. Yes, my name is KRS, my brother is a roster. Let me pause, and now a word from our sponsor. Welcome to episode 1829 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I am joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? I am doing well. And we are also joined by other Ben, Ben Clemens of Fangraphs. Ben, how are you? I'm also doing well, so. Yay. Double Bens, <laughs> both doing well. <laughs> Double barrel Bens. So other Ben is here for our NL Central Division preview, but a bit of banter before we get to that. And I saw someone on Twitter the other day saying, I started listening to this podcast, Effectively Wild. It was the AL Central preview, and I kept waiting for them to talk about the AL Central, and they didn't. And I was afraid to fast forward because I thought I would miss something, and when are they going to get to the AL Central? It's in the timestamp right there in the summary. Sometimes we take our time and beat around the bush a little bit at the beginning but it's all baseball related and if you just want to skip to our team by team breakdowns you can click on that button in your podcast app and it will take you right to it it works as a link and everything but before we get to the nl central this has been on my mind all day i got an email this morning and meg you probably got this email too an mlb press release and the subject line says corona named official cerveza of major league baseball And it says, Corona is proud to announce that starting this baseball season, it is the official cerveza of Major League Baseball, MLB. The multi-year sponsorship with Corona also includes a custom content platform on MLB.com and MLB Network that aims to bring fans closer to the sport and empower the next generation of star players to showcase their refreshing perspectives on and off the field. Refreshing because it's beer. And I thought to myself, Corona is the official cerveza of Major League Baseball doesn't MLB already have an official beer and I looked it up and yes it does Budweiser is the official beer of Major League Baseball so now Major League Baseball has added an official cerveza which is just beer in a different language (laughs) so MLB now has an official beer and an official cerveza at the same time and this is brilliant I don't know whether this is a a marketing innovation that MLB has made here. I haven't encountered it before, but both of you have been in the business world. So maybe MLB (laughs) did not come up with this tactic. But this is, I mean, (laughs) just when you thought that MLB could not just shoehorn more ads and sponsors into everything, we now have multiple beer sponsors. And all you had to do was use the word in Spanish and you get double the sponsors. So there's no end to the potential sponsors here. I mean, you could have multiple sponsors in the same category as long as you find a sponsor, translate the word into another language. I guess it has to be a sponsor that sells stuff in the U.S., presumably. But that's it. And you could just stack sponsors on top of sponsors on top of sponsors. I don't know whether Budweiser was happy about this or whether there was any kind of <laughs> exclusivity contract. Like Wait, Presumably not. <laughs> they, they forgot about the loophole. They said, like, we'll be your exclusive beer sponsor. 
but they didn't think of <laughs> if they just used the word in a different language. And now we have an official cerveza sponsor on top of the official beer sponsor. So I don't know if this would just annoy existing sponsors or not, but I look forward to seeing how absurd it can get. Well, I have a theory here, which is okay. that they are probably not annoyed because of who the official cerveza is, because aren't Budweiser and Corona uh, both owned by InBev? Oh, okay. Yeah. See, I know something about beer, but that makes sense. So maybe it's like added value right. for Budweiser. Then it's like a Budweiser subsidiary or sub-brand or something. Now they get double the official sponsorships of Major League Baseball. Right. Yep. It is owned by Anheuser-Busch. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think that in this case, they're probably not annoyed, but it does in the possibility like could there be an official champagne and an official prosecco of major league baseball right because right. it's only champagne and it comes from the champagne region of france but prosecco like uh, uh, describes a much broader range of sparkling wines so you know they could do that they could have an official lambrusco of major league baseball another slightly effervescent wine product mm -hmm. are you like operating under the assumption that like goldman had like an official beer of goldman Sachs? <laughs> and an official cerveza <laughs> I don't know. I figure you two know about business, and I know so little about it that that could very well be under the aegis of business in some sense. So, sure, yeah. Yeah. But I like this. It's like the official champagne and the official spumante or something yeah. of Major League Baseball. Just like cram as many sponsors as you can and brilliant. And then, and then you could also have uh, have high life because it is the champagne of beer. So really, you know, you have you have just like limitless opportunities. Wait, would it be the official champagne of beer of Major League Baseball? <laughs> <laughs> I think that some of the you know like having an official beer is. Well, it's all silly marketing stuff, right? But like it makes marginally more sense. I think the ones where I continue to just be really floored is like when it's like the official paper supply company of Major Tucson. League Baseball. Yeah, like I don't have big hauling needs. I don't have I don't have need for a backhoe. Like that's just not a thing I have a need for. So I don't know why all of that stuff is being advertised to me. Like not every advertisement is targeted to you. I mean, when it comes to, to baseballs, very, very few of them are, in fact. <laughs> anyway, kudos to MLB and Rob Manfred for little else, but definitely for this, <laughs> for finding the most devious ways to cram every possible sponsor into the game that they can. Even if this is kind of on a technicality, only actually one sponsor, I still just have to tip my cap. Sometimes you have to tip your cap. That's what the players say. And this was tangentially NL Central related anyway, because we're about to talk about the Cardinals, right? Bush Stadium, Anheuser-Busch. Sure. It's all part of the InBev umbrella, I guess. So... Just a few things before we get to the team by team, and this will all, in a sense, be NL Central preview because it is season preview, and the NL Central is a division in Major League Baseball, but there have been a few announcements since we last recorded about rules changes or potential rules changes, so one of those is that there is going to be yet another crackdown, a secondary crackdown on sticky stuff. And this is something that we talked about late last season, I think. Rob Arthur at Baseball Prospectus noted that spin rates, which had really precipitously declined right around when the initial ban was put into effect, had begun to rebound suspiciously. 
And it seemed to be the case that maybe umpires were just going through the motions and they were checking the belt and they're checking the cap and just a few set locations and pitchers knew where those locations were, the glove, etc. And so if they found somewhere else to stick the sticky stuff, then they could get away with it. And so it seemed like the spin rates were rising again. So now MLB has taken notice of Rob's research or its own research and has come up with the surefire way to stop all sticky stuff usage, which now, as reported by Tom Verducci, will be to check the hand. So to go straight to not the source, I guess, but the eventual origin, the idea is that, well, if you're going to use sticky stuff wherever you have it stuck initially, it's going to end up on your hand if it's going to have any effect. So now we will see sort of a sensual baseball grasping of hands potentially during these umpire inspections where they'll check the top of the hand and check the bottom of the hand. And if the players wipe off their hands, then that will be taken as an admission of guilt and they can be thrown out of the game anyway. So this is just another manifestation of the cat and mouse cheaters versus crackdowns on cheaters kind of dynamic that we see in every sport always. (laughs) So kind of doubt that this will completely do away with that sticky stuff abuse either, but I guess it's the natural next step, right? Is it going to be like when you go through TSA and you get selected to to have them run those like strips over your hands to see if you've, you know, been handling explosives or whatever right, yeah. it is that they're testing? Is it going to be like that? I think you just kind of like rub your hands on their hands. So I hope they put on white gloves. Yeah. Right. And- but but could you detect the stickiness if you did? And I mean, this is something you definitely couldn't do during COVID protocols, I guess, even though COVID is mostly airborne. This probably would have been a, a bridge too far a year or two ago, but maybe now it's considered safe and sanitary enough to do. But I wonder, I mean, I don't know what the way around this is because you do have to have the sticky stuff on your hands to actually apply it to the ball. So unless you really pick your spots and you're able to hide it at the precise moment that you're going to get inspected without wiping it off suspiciously and then reapply it somehow. Wait, can't you just wait until they inspect you and then do it after that? Right. I mean, if they only do the inspections after the inning, right, then you could get away with it pretty easily right because you could just apply it between innings or at the start of the inning and then it would be gone it would wear away or you could wipe it off surreptitiously by the time you were walking off the field so i don't know maybe they'll check at the start of innings too i mean it's just going to be constant like we'll do this and then you'll do that (laughs) so unless they eventually develop just a tacky ball or they legalize some sort of foreign substance then i guess this is what we're stuck with but the initial crackdown did work i had to give them some credit for that too and after the first day or two it wasn't that much of a sideshow maybe because the inspections were not actually rigorous in any way and pitchers soon found ways around them but it makes sense that this would be the next thing they try it just seems like it's gonna get awkward you know having yeah. to like feel up the players to make sure that they're not too sticky <laughs> yeah hire umpires with good hand massage skills <laughs> yeah yeah well and it's like how do they you know i guess it's better than them having to like touch their hair which is the other place or yeah, like really reach uh... in on their belts <laughs> yeah max scherzer was not happy about the the sweaty hair debacle yeah so i, I 
if you're gonna do it, I guess this is what you're signing up for. Like, otherwise, it's just too vulnerable to gaming. But it, mm -hmm. it does seem awkward that you're gonna be like rubbing on their hands. Like, what if someone just has really sweaty hands? Yeah, I mean, I guess there's a difference between natural sweatiness and sticky sweatiness. <laughs> Some people are sweatier and stickier than others, just naturally. But would the umpires be trained to detect stickiness <laughs> in sweat? I mean, that was like one of the excuses that was sort of proposed last year was like, oh, well, they didn't have time to train the umpires, or at least they can't actually train the umpires to recognize certain substances and distinguish like pine tar from other stuff initially at least when it was just a blanket ban and it was like well if you have anything then you're gone because they can't actually tell because we're just implementing this in the middle of the season so i don't know i think there should be a special session of like hand rubbing and there has to be like a double blind test or something where it's just like feeling suspicious sticky hands versus non-suspicious sticky hands non-suspicious sticky hands is just i mean like some of this stuff is gonna be obvious right like i know that not all of the substances look as dark and goopy as some of the others but like s sometimes it's not gonna take a lot for them to be like oh yeah you have you have look at your hands look at all that right. gunk on your hands mm-hmm <sighs> yep and you got to be careful not to get any of the official cerveza of Major League Baseball on your hands if you're having a cold one between innings. Cause that well, presumably that will be illegal. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Well, maybe for the official beer and the official cerveza, maybe there'd be an exception made. I don't know. The other potential rule change that will be tested in the minors and evidently already was tested in some minor leagues last year without anyone actually being aware of that or an announcement being made is that second base is being moved. So this is not just bases being bigger or telling players where they can and can't stand. It is a subtle shift in the actual position of second base on the field. Jason Stark reported this, and I feel like the story disturbed people. They kind of questioned whether they actually knew anything about baseball at all because he had a diagram in his story, and this part of it was not news. I mean, this had been exposed and explained before, but I don't think that people were generally aware of it. But second base historically has not been positioned the same way that the corner bases have. And if you look at a diagram of the field, first and third base are positioned really like at the juncture of the lines, basically, like just at the corner so that the edge is at the foul line, whereas second base is bisected really by the base pass between first and second and second and third. And I don't know that a lot of people realize this without looking at the diagram and they were suddenly questioning the quote unquote perfect symmetry of the 90 foot base pass and all of that, which is always sort of a, a fiction. So now what they are doing is they are actually going to shift second base slightly forward so that it too will be positioned at the intersection of those baselines, essentially. And this will have the effect of slightly shortening the distance between bases. So it was never actually 90 feet when you take into account that the base extends beyond like the center of the base on both sides. But now we're going from 88 feet, 1.5 inches to 87 feet even. 
And unlike the bigger bases, which is partly a safety issue so that players won't be as liable to step on each other, this is just to shorten the distance between those bags to hopefully encourage base stealing. And whether that will actually happen in any appreciable way, I I have (laughs) grave doubts about that, but... Evidently, this is happening. And maybe if this is happening, then we can all get used to other supposedly fundamental dimensions on the field changing. Maybe this is like the Trojan horse for moving the mound back or something. Probably not, but I'd like to think so. I saw that this had happened. And are you ever like so deep in the midst of, say, editing the positional power rankings (laughs) that you're like, if I allow for the possibility that I have misunderstood either in the past or potentially in the future, like literally the location of second base, I will simply fall apart in a way that does not allow me to complete this task. Because that was my reaction. I was like, I don't have time to like question second base right now. I am busy questioning second base in a different way, for instance, but (laughs) not this way. I feel like I know where that is. I need to to continue to think I know where that is. And I don't know if my understanding was wrong or not, because again, haven't haven't dug in. But um, I think we should leave the... Bases where they were. Also, more people should read the rule books. There are a lot of diagrams in there. Then no one will be confused. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. an interesting math problem hidden in this, mm. which is that second base is moving closer to home plate too. Right. Yeah. By more than it's moving closer to first or second. Oh, good or point. Yes. Third. Yeah. But it's still gonna increase stolen base rates because the ball travels a lot faster than mm. a human. Right. And so you're shaving more seconds off the human than the ball. For about 10 seconds, I was like, this isn't going to work. And then I thought about it a little longer and thought, this is going to work, but it won't matter much. Yeah, right. I don't know how we would define working because it would probably be a very small difference. This was just done in, I guess, the second half of last season in the Pacific Coast League, which was then known as AAA West. And the success rate on stolen bases increased very slightly but the rate of attempts barely changed at all. However, that could have been related to the fact that no one knew that this had happened. (laughs) Like, they didn't tell anyone, which is an interesting thing. Like, how long could you get away with just changing the dimensions of the field if you didn't announce it? Would players actually notice? I mean, you know, there have been various conspiracies in the past about that sort of thing, about, like, is that fence actually that far from home plate? And, like, suspicious opponents would pace off the foul to see if it actually was that far so you could potentially it seems like i mean if none of the players or managers or anyone noticed that (laughs) suddenly the baseline was like a foot or more shorter then uh yeah maybe you could just get away with that and get yourself a little competitive advantage that no one would notice so that's another takeaway i had from this but it probably won't encourage base stealing all that much No, probably not. But, you know, anytime that the game can mess with our fundamental sense of reality, it's got to do it. Can't let those go. (laughs) Yes. What can we count on if not the positioning of the bases? Suddenly just feeling unmoored from my center of gravity here. And the last announcement in that genre reported, I believe, by Enoceris was that we're getting humidors in every ballpark this season. So humidors have been in 10 of the major league parks as recently as this past season now they're going to be everywhere and i think there's sort of a misconception about humidors just because we all got acquainted with humidors at course field and then at chase field too and so everyone thinks of humidors as offense suppressing devices and that is the way that they worked in those two parks 
but that is not necessarily the way that they work in all parks. It depends on the atmospheric conditions and the humidity in those parks. So as Eno noted, humidity increases distance because balls fly easier through humid air. However, balls stored in humid air get wet and heavy. So with a humidor in a wet place, that will remain humid, but now feature lighter, drier balls. The net effect of the humidor will be more distance. So it really depends on the place. It could actually boost offense slightly depending on the park. And the idea is just to bring the storage conditions to average. So in a dry park, the balls will get more wet. And in a wet park, the balls will get drier. And this, of course, doesn't solve the underlying issue of maybe multiple models of baseball being (laughs) in use. So this is like the horses left the barn in a sense, like we have different baseballs, but we are storing them in hopefully identical conditions. So it is some standardization, like I am generally in favor of this. It is maybe not the main issue but it seems i guess good to cut down on some of the variability i don't know does either of you have strong feelings about humidors being universal dryer lighter what ben (laughs) i think that uh yeah (laughs) i'm 12 years old that's one of my thoughts about this (laughs) how big are these humidors i had never thought about this until right now but they have to store a lot of baseballs yeah yeah I don't know. Are they like walk-in refrigerators? I have never actually taken a tour of a humidor. I couldn't tell you. I want to now. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, that's just something to know. I think probably a lot of fantasy players and daily fantasy players and gamblers were thinking, oh, whoa, humidor, maybe I have to adjust my models. Right. Maybe some of them do in some small way. But I think just because we all got to know humidors in the most extreme high offense environments and they brought them a little bit down to earth, not physically or literally, but in terms of how the ball behaves, I think maybe you just kind of have to correct the record on what a humidor is and what a humidor does. But in general, I'm in favor of the effort of keeping the balls in more or less the same kind of conditions, also in favor of making sure that the balls are actually the same, but that is apparently too difficult to ask for. Right. I think that that is likely to have the larger effect, but I guess, I mean, like, it's never bad to aim for consistency. We've been, we've been pleading for that uh, in in other avenues for a while. So sure, sure. Mm -hmm. But yeah, now I want to take a humidor tour. Where do they make the humidors? Where Mm -hmm. is the, is there a humidor, an industrial size humidor factory? Like you sit there and you're like, a whole person has a livelihood because of this weird thing, probably. Mm -hmm. Right. I yep, want to yep, know sure where do they make where do they make them? Big humidor. There's probably an official humidor manufacturer of Major League <laughs> Baseball, <laughs> or in Spanish, humidor. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so the only problem with doing our division preview series before the season actually starts, which is kind of when you have to do a preview series, but also some things change as you're doing it which is maybe a problem that's a little less acute now that we're doing it so close to opening day. But just since we did a couple last week, we started with AL Central and then we moved to NL West and there were a few notable developments in those divisions. So for one thing, the Twins signed a starting pitcher, Chris Archer. Yeah. Maybe not the starting pitcher that Twins fans are hoping for and perhaps not the only starting pitcher that they will sign. (laughs) Hopefully, (laughs) at least Twins fans are thinking. But... That's a start, I suppose. 
it's just a small one-year deal, and I don't know how many innings you can count on Chris Archer for, but if either of you has Chris Archer thoughts, speak now. (laughs) (laughs) Ben, are you writing about this for us? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and you still uh, may not have Chris Archer thoughts. Well, <laughs> I mean, I think that like it's fine. It's totally yeah, fine. It's fine. Like mm-hmm. he could be, he could be fine. I think the structure of this makes a lot of sense, where you have a, a relatively low base and the potential for more with a lot of incentives. This is a model that Minnesota seems keen on, and so, and I think it makes a lot of sense for him, just like it made a lot of sense for Buxton. And uh, although those are obviously slightly different signings in terms of their magnitudes, yeah. <laughs> but it's fine. You need arms to throw pitches over innings, and mm. he can probably do that. And if he does it well, then he'll make more money, and the team will be better. So this seems good. <laughs> I'm going to write that down. Meg Howard will be ready <laughs> yeah, in five can you, minutes. Can you repeat yeah. that? <laughs> yeah. So you need arms to throw innings, and right. uh, he does that. Got it. Done. Okay. Elsewhere in the AL Central, there were some reports of Jose Ramirez extension talks with the Guardians, although who knows how close those are to potentially coming to fruition. However, there was more concrete extension news over in the NL West. When we did our Diamondbacks preview, we talked about Cattell Marte as one of the storylines for the team this season. And I guess it is, but it's also a storyline that is sort of wrapped up already in that the Diamondbacks have signed Cattell Marte to a multi-year extension, which adds, what, three years on top of the team options that he had on the end of his deal already. And this has to be nice for Diamondbacks fans because we talked about how he had a team-friendly contract and how they needed to get something good if they were going to move him and whether they would and whether it made sense for them to. And, I mean, he's still so affordable under the terms of this deal that I guess they theoretically still could. But it seems like they want to keep him and build around him. And this is something that, Ben, you actually have already written about. Yeah, I, I liked the signing quite a bit for both sides which is kind of rare. And I mean, it's not super rare in extensions, but this one just worked out really well for both parties. I think the Diamondbacks were kind of going to be awkwardly in between where a lot of their best prospects and they have a lot of good prospects yeah. wouldn't really be ready in the next year and would kind of be percolating up to the majors next year. And by that point, Marte would kind of be on his way out the door and they'd have a very short time frame to have you know everybody all together. And now that he's there for an extra three or four years, uh, there's a team option at the end of this one too. It just makes the timelines sync up a lot better. And I don't think they're getting you know, a bargain of all bargains in the way that they did with his last deal, but they're basically compensating him as if he's going to be a good player who misses a bunch of time due to injury, which mm-hmm. is kind of what Cattell Marte is. And there's mm-hmm. upside if he plays more than that. Yeah. I can tell you how I heard a discussion after stumbling upon Sports Talk Radio in Arizona that there was a debate if anyone other than Cattell could be the face of the franchise for the D-backs. They were confused about that. I think that he's, you know, you can't make the argument really for anyone, I guess maybe except for Gallon, but... He's he's a good player. He blossomed in the desert in a way that is very cool. And I don't know, like like you said, this is a good bridge to get them to, you know, Lawler and Corbin Carroll and all their other guys who are going to come up and be hopefully pretty good for them in a couple of years. And mm-hmm. it's not like it precludes, like if they really, really decide that they have to go in a different direction, 
this doesn't even technically preclude them from trading him, right? There's no no trade in it, is there? No. And I think it's not common that you trade somebody after extending them because usually those are the bigger money years in the right. extension. But right. these aren't that, that big. Right. Like, they're reasonable. I think they're a lot reasonable. of teams would be happy to have Cattell Marte for those three extra years if they already wanted him for the I mean, very lucrative first three of his deal. Right. And so it's one of those strange things where in some ways, and I'm not saying that that Arizona will move him, I think you don't do this if your intent is to to move on. But in some ways, there's an ease of trade that comes with absolute cost certainty. (laughs) So I don't think it closes the door on that if they decide they actually have to go that way. But I'm glad that they're at least signaling that they will give fans here something to be excited about until the next round of, of good young players can can work their way up and you know, if he's not spending a bunch of time in the outfield, it probably helps to keep him healthy and the DH helps with that too. So I don't know. It just seems like a good thing. Seems like a good thing. And if I had to bet before the off season started, I would I would have found it more likely that he wouldn't be on the opening day roster than that they could count on him being on one for the next couple of years. So it's good. Mm-hmm. And if he plays well, then they will win more games and ultimately he will make more money. Right. We're uh, porting our previous analysis over to the signing as well. It works for anything, really. You need bats to take at bats <laughs> and, and he can do that. So yeah. I think it's good. Yeah. Where else can you get this sort of insight? This is what people come to Fangraphs <laughs> and Effectively Wild for. So... In other NL West extension news, Dave Roberts signed one too, a three-year deal to remain as the manager of the Dodgers. And right after we finished recording our NL West division preview, Dave Roberts guaranteed a Dodgers championship in 2022, which made me seriously consider scrapping the rest of this preview series. I feel like we're just wasting our time now. I mean, he multiple times guaranteed that the Dodgers would win the World Series this year. Spoilers, dude. Like, we're just waiting to see the season start. Now we know how it's going to end already. My enthusiasm is sapped. But this is kind of weird. Like, we don't hear that many guarantees anymore. I don't feel like. I feel like the championship guarantee has kind of fallen by the wayside. And he repeated it twice last Thursday. I think he was on the Dan Patrick show. And he said that the Dodgers would win the World Series. I I think Patrick prompted him. He said, like, the Dodgers will win the World Series if. And Robert said, we play a full season and there is a postseason. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> wow. So if the season I mean we can't count on that happening these days. Sadly we have pandemics, not. we have work stoppages, who knows? So fair enough that he is putting in a couple of caveats here. Patrick was taken aback, I think, and he asked Roberts to repeat it. Robert said, We are winning the World Series in twenty twenty two, but I know where you're going with that. We are winning the World Series this year. Put it on record. We are winning the World Series. That's our focus. That's our goal. Then he hedged a little bit. He said, we are winning the World Series if our starting staff stays healthy, which, I mean, once you've guaranteed the victory multiple times, I don't think you can then add no. conditions. Like if yeah, you have are... <laughs> to have the courage of your conviction, sir. Yeah, right. You can dig in a little bit on that, but I think it's about our starting pitching, keeping our guys healthy. Well, sure. I mean, that's kind of what it's about for almost every team, really. But he did guarantee it. He said, I'm putting it out there. I'm putting it out in the universe. And then he was asked about it by reporters again later that day. He was asked if he was still making a championship guarantee. And he said, I am. I'd be crazy not to. (laughs) I don't know if that's the case, but I wasn't expecting these kind of bold claims 
from Dave Roberts. I don't really remember him making these claims before. It's possible that he has, and I just forgot. But you'd think that Dave Roberts, of all people, should know that it's hard to count on a World Series, even if you have the best team in baseball. He has won one, but he has also lost a bunch that potentially he could have won. So anyway, make of that what you will. Dave Roberts, evidently extremely confident, or at least projecting confidence in a way that I feel like is no longer in vogue in professional sports. Do you think he got a tattoo that has like... Dodgers 2022 World Series champions. He should, if he's that certain about it. Yeah, put it on your skin. I've guaranteed more than one thing in my life, and I have zero tattoos. Yeah, (laughs) I mean, I have two, but people seem to really like those, which, I mean, tattoos also, but like the ones that proclaim a prediction about a championship. And sometimes they work out, and it seems like oftentimes they do not. I don't know. Is there like a real downside to doing this? It's goofy, but don't you want him to say, "Yeah, we're gonna go, we're gonna go win this whole thing"? Like that isn't that what oh, you yeah. want your manager, I want my manager to say? To do this every year. Yeah, like, and you know what? <laughs> if they all did it every year, we'd never remember. We'd forget. So really, they need to right. get together and all make that prediction. I mean, like maybe not, maybe not like the Pirates, but like you know, everybody else could be like, "Yeah, we're gonna go win this thing," and and then we wouldn't hold any individual you know, manager responsible for getting it wrong and uh, you get to rile up your your dudes. Seems Mm. good. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. The only possible downside is that it could be motivation for your opponents or something if they think you're arrogant and you're taking it for granted and they want to make you pay or something like that. But I have no idea whether anyone is paying attention. It's spring training and optimism tends to run rampant at this time of year. And I didn't actually hear him say it. So it's possible that he said it in sort of a tongue in cheek way. I don't know. Maybe you could hear him smiling or laughing as he said it. But Yeah, probably no serious downside. No one actually takes it seriously. And he just got the extension. So (laughs) he's got job security. If the guarantee doesn't pan out, then he's still signed for quite a while. So he will weather that loss, I am sure. I try not to guarantee anything ever if I can help it because we're all at the mercy of the universe and we're just buffeted about by forces that we can't control or understand. And I try to take that into account and avoid making any predictions when I can. But uh, I applaud his confidence, I guess. Maybe if it motivates opponents, maybe it also motivates his own players to say, hey, he believes in us and we can do this thing. Although they're the Dodgers, so no one was doubting that the Dodgers were a championship caliber club. So NL Central, the first part of my NL Central preview is that Andrew Miller will no longer be a part of the NL Central as he has been of late because he retired. Just wanted to note that he was, of course, most recently on the Cardinals and he had a very notable career, right? Like we all have thoughts and feelings about Andrew Miller that we don't have about the typical reliever or swingman type who ended up with a career ERA just better than league average, but just a notable career. Future generations, when they look back and see, you know, career war of eight or whatever at baseball reference, maybe they won't think that much of Andrew Miller, but he played a prominent part in this era, I think, not only being a first-round pick, a sixth overall pick, who struggled at first with the Tigers as a starter and then really found his niche in the bullpen and became kind of a formational figure in recent bullpen usage, especially in October, and then played a prominent role in the MLBPA side of the recent CBA negotiations. So 
Happy trails, Andrew Miller. You left me with memories that I will miss. Yeah, I think that the 2016, his performance in the 2016 postseason is like one of my all-time favorite postseason pitching performances. Yeah. So I will always be grateful for that. I think it is, whether he knew or not, like I have a feeling that Andrew Miller was kind of aware that he might do this and to go through an entire CBA negotiation and then be like, and now I am done after trying to make the game better for the next generation is like a deeply cool thing to do. So I hope uh, I hope that big spindly guy has a great time in retirement. Yeah. Yeah. That offseason, I don't know whether it was a symptom or a cause of changes that would have happened anyway, but yeah. Boy, what did we talk and write about more during that time than Andrew Miller? And is Andrew Miller revolutionizing bullpen usage even before the playoffs, like yeah. when he was with Cleveland and Francona was using him in that way to prepare for the postseason? And suddenly it was like, well, everyone has to have an Andrew Miller and it's the breakdown of bullpen roles. And that kind of has held true at least in October. And I don't know whether he played a role in making that happen or whether he was a manifestation of a trend that would have happened anyway. It probably right. could be a bit of both. Yeah. But I think his success in that role where he was brought in at all times and all innings and had success and could go multiple innings and everything, everyone suddenly wanted an Andrew Miller. And not everyone had one because Andrew Miller was really great at that time. But I think he kind of created a, a template or at least reminded people of a template that had previously existed. Yeah, I imagine that it's a, a, a blend of, of his sort of innate ability and flexibility and, you know, stuff that Cleveland would have wanted to do with anyone who had those attributes. But yeah, I don't know. It's really cool. Well, Andrew Miller is no longer on the Cardinals, but other people are. <laughs> That's my segue <laughs> to talking about the Cardinals. We haven't really stuck to any strict order when it comes to previewing these teams. Generally, we've started with the better ones and proceeded toward the worse ones. I don't know that the Cardinals are the best team in this division or the one that I would pick, but I just made a very strange segue to them. And Ben, you have been a blogger of the Cardinals and you are a Cardinals fan. So I suppose this is a logical place to start with the Cardinals and we have our six questions that we have loosely followed as we preview these divisions, and I guess we can trot out that same sort of format here. So first question might not be the easiest to answer for the Cardinals because they were not among the most active teams this offseason, but best offseason move or favorite offseason move? Yeah, actually, I think they have a pretty clear frontrunner, and that's signing Steven Matz. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they really have a type and that makes sense because they have the best defense in baseball and they have a pretty spacious stadium. And so pitchers that perform well in the Cardinals often limit walks and keep the ball on the ground, basically, because their infield defense is particularly good. Their outfield defense is good, too, but their infield defense is where the team seems to make a lot of its gains. And I would have preferred them to sign Marcus Stroman as a fan. But there are two pitchers in the entire uh, free agency class that had a lower walk rate and a higher ground ball rate than Matt's. And that's kind of like the two things that if I'm the Cardinals, it seems like I would hone, hone in on. And they're Stroman and Clayton Kershaw. And they weren't signing Kershaw. So yeah, I would have preferred Stroman. But getting someone who does what Matt's does, which is keep the ball on the ground and not walk too many guys, is just perfect. And can you imagine being Steven Matt's and shifting from a... I mean, usually Bo Bichette and then Biggio to shortstop in third 
to Nolan Arenado and whoever the Cardinals put at shortstop. Yeah. It's going to be just like a huge improvement. And he's lefty, so there's a lot of righty ground ball pull hitters that are playing against him. I think this is going to really flatter his statistics. And, I mean, as it turns out, we'll get to this later in the preview, the Cardinals could use some starters. So yeah. he's in the right place. I think that you're right that that is, from a improving the roster perspective, the the best addition. But can we briefly talk about the, the sentimental one? How, yeah. how do you feel about Pujols <laughs> yeah. being back in St. Louis? So from a team construction standpoint, which I can kind of force myself to do briefly at times, I don't like it. It doesn't really make any sense. They don't need him. From a this is awesome perspective, yeah, it's great. I yeah. mean, it's his last year. I think it's somewhat likely to be Yadier Molina and, and Adam Wainwright's last year as well. Less certainly so there. And it's great. They're getting the whole band back together. I assume that in signing a you know, a two and a half million dollar deal and signing on a place that has Paul Goldschmidt at first base, he kind of understands that he's a part-time DH. Yeah. And that's cool. I mean, they're gonna have so many Pujols bobblehead nights this year. Oh my gosh! It's gonna be, <laughs> it's gonna be something you've never seen before. It'll be like a Pujols bobblehead night every homestand. <laughs> Just different iconic moments. They'll have a, a bobble ball night where of the ball bouncing off the wall after he hit that home run off Brad Lynch. <laughs> they're just gonna they're just going to really, really lean into it, and I think they should. I don't know if you've seen the Nolan Arnado interview that he gave last year, kind of unbidden when Pujols was released. And he just said, you know, you're my favorite player. I hope you get a chance to hear this. You deserve to end your career the right way. And hey, things worked out really well. Yeah. Yeah. I think that we we too often see guys sort of slink into retirement without the opportunity to, you know, have a curtain call, even if they're not at, you know, their peak anymore. And what better place for him to get to do that than where it all began. Yeah. I love a sentimental end of career homecoming. And he was somewhat useful in a very limited role with the Dodgers at times last season, right? I mean, I think we were all perplexed at first, like, what? He doesn't even have a place on the Angels and the Dodgers want him? But they were kind of in desperate straits at the time. And it turned out that at least while he was with them, he hit pretty decently against lefties and they used him somewhat sparingly. And more when they were shorthanded than when they got some guys back. So perhaps he will have that same sort of success and you minimize his exposure to right-handed pitching this year. I mean, I guess the only risk that comes with it is that the Cardinals are a contending team and this could be a close division race and you are assigning a roster spot to a player who... Let's be honest, like there is <laughs> a real chance that he will be bad, right? And that whatever magic dust propped him up when he was with the Dodgers last year will disappear and he will just be a replacement level or sub-replacement level player. And you have committed to the farewell tour at this right. point. So is, there's no getting out of it. It would be pretty awkward to cut. <laughs> yeah, you can't, yeah. You can't I mean, DFA pools. <laughs> no, you can't. Like at this point, you can't. The Angels could. The Cardinals can't. It's possible like if he's... Feeling like he's just not up to the task anymore. He could walk away. He could yeah. call it a career early and pull like a Mike Schmidt. But barring that, like he's going to go out on his own terms. So you're stuck with him and you have to hope that he will hit a little or that you will have the roster room to just kind of carry him in a ceremonial clubhouse, you know, franchise hero, take curtain calls and sell bobbleheads, uh, give away bobbleheads kind of role. And, you know, I guess he's, uh, too far away from any really notable milestones are there any like milestone watches i mean he's 21 homers away from 
700, right? Which yeah. I it's don't not see. Impossible. It's not impossible. It's, not, it's, it's kind of impossible. It's not. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, he hit 17 in 296 plate appearances last year. So if you were to give him like 500 or something, he might very well do it. But I don't think that would be a good idea. So yeah. um, a lot would have to go wrong for that to happen. Or a lot would have to go really, really right. But that seems sort of unlikely. Well, okay, he's um he is twenty nine games away from three thousand games played. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's yeah. kind of a milestone. Yeah, I, that, I don't think there's any other obvious ones. No, I do love you know one of the ways that I have prepped for for these previews is to use um, the off season tracker at, at Fangraphs, uh, a good website. And you know when you when you select a team and additions, it gives you the the date that the thing happened and the team and the player and the position and their age and then their service time. (laughs) And like normally you're looking at numbers like eight, five, one, sometimes less than one. And then there's pools and you're like 21. (laughs) That's great. That's a very high number. That's a high number. (laughs) So what are the strengths and weaknesses of this roster? So biggest strength, which I kind of covered in the offseason acquisitions is defense. And Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just not, Close, they're the best defensive team in baseball. I think not the gold gloves are perfect, but they won five gold gloves last year. Yeah. That's, that's a lot of gold gloves. I think that Harrison Bader is one of the best, probably two center field defenders in baseball. Tyler O'Neill has finally figured out how to like read the ball off a bat, and he's yeah. incredibly fast. He's probably the fastest left fielder in baseball. Arenado is, if not the best defensive third baseman in the game, then like right there at the very top. Tommy Edmond is great. Dylan Carlson is like maybe the weak spot defensively. And I think if you ask any talent evaluators, he's, I mean, just fine in right field. I don't think he's a minus at all. He was like one or two outs below average last year, but eh, he's basically okay. And he's by far the weakest defender of their starting rotation and even of their utility people. Uh, Edmundo Sosa, who is going to be kind of their utility infielder slash maybe starting shortstop. It's kind of a weird situation there, is also a very good defender. Their other really good strength is they just kill left-handed pitching. Mm-hmm. Like, probably Pujols is their worst... Well, Tommy Edmund can't hit lefties, but Pujols is their second worst batter against lefties, and that's a pretty good place to be. The Dodgers used him like in the middle of the Dodgers lineup against lefties sometimes. Everyone else is... All, like, all their best hitters are righty or switch, and it, it's just going to be, when they face a lefty, it's going to be a really tough lineup to get through. So I think those are their two uh, strongest points. In terms of weaknesses... It's probably the rotation. Yeah. I think there's some chance it's catching because at some point the the years are going to catch up with Molina and he's been declining offensively for a little bit now. You know, he still grades out okay framing wise and he's a pretty good defender on everything else and people don't run him. I don't know if that's just reputation or if he still has it, but they don't and you know that counts. And so he he still brings a lot to the team. But he was not a very good hitter last year. He had an on-base percentage below 300. That's the first time since, I don't know, since he was kind of more of the backup type early in his career. That's been the case. He didn't really hit for much power. And for a while, it seemed like he was going to rescue his offensive game as he started to decline like on base-wise by hitting for power. And he just kind of stopped doing that last year. It, it always seemed like kind of a like a temporary fix. So that's a little bit of a weakness, but I think they're... They'll probably be able to get not too far below average play out of him and uh, Kisner. The rotation is just scary. Yeah. <laughs> I like that they signed Aaron Brooks and Drew Verhagen out of NPB and KBO. Uh, not respectively. I think I might have flipped those. <laughs> but they signed those guys from overseas. And that's kind of a nice 
like four, five, six, seven starter kind of plan. But Jack Flaherty's timeline has been delayed. He had a reaction to platelet-rich plasma treatments. Uh, that already sounds bad. It's in his shoulder. It's not good either. Yeah. His elbow was barking last year. And uh. A lot of bad things there. Adam Wainwright is 40, and we were listing him as their ace. Miles Michaelis didn't really pitch that much last year and didn't pitch at all in 2020. And he's their second starter. It's just really hard to imagine that they're going to get through the season without sending some kind of bad pitchers out there. And that's that's before the the normal attrition that happens throughout the year. If, if Flaherty pitches 150 innings, I take it back. I'm more comfortable, but I just don't think he will. Yeah, it doesn't seem especially likely. And like they have, you know, they have Libertor, but the... He's not ready. Right. He's not ready. And I was going to say like they're not exactly like flush with guys who they can call up and say, okay, here you go. Like time to make good. Apart from podcast favorite, Packy Naughton, who yeah. at some point I will forgive the Cardinals for signing instead of the Red Sox. But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think Verhagen and uh, I don't actually know if Brooks is even going to get a chance to start, but I think yeah. Verhagen is a nice option there yeah. where, yeah, he's probably a reliever, but if you need him to make, if you a need couple. him to switch into the rotation yeah. for a month, like he can do that. I think that's, that's not going to leave them high and dry. I think that those were both pretty, like, cagey and canny signings. They they knew what they were doing. They didn't spend too much doing it, and they got some pretty useful innings, like inning availability. I don't know if they'll actually use them all. Mm-hmm. And the Cardinals did not end up moving the fences at Bush Stadium in, right? There was some talk that they were considering doing that because it has played like a hitter's park lately. And I don't know, maybe it's not the best year to do that, given all the pitching uncertainty that we were talking about. But anyway, fences are where we left them, right? Yes. And that seems fine. I I don't actually think it matters that much either way. It's not like they have a bunch of pitchers that are fly ball homer prone guys anyway. So Mm -hmm. I think it's just a pretty small effect. So I guess Tyler O'Neill was the big breakout player last year. Do you have a pick for 2022 breakout Cardinal? I do. Um, I, I'm cheating, which is <laughs> one of my favorite things to do when you pick breakout players. <laughs> I learned this from Jeff Sullivan. Dylan Carlson. Yeah, he'd be by too, even though he's been already yeah. good. So it's, yeah. it's a false breakout. He he had he put up three wars a rookie despite middling defensive metrics, and that I think will improve slightly this year. But I mean, he is really good, and if he had a Tyler O'Neill esque five war season, I wouldn't be that surprised. Switch hitters often develop kind of slowly yeah. because, you know, they, they just get less reps at each relevant skill for being a major leaguer because they, they steal some of them to bat other handed. And he still, like, was incredible in the majors. He had a 113 WRC plus, it looks like. That's very good for his age. That's very, it's fine for his position. There's room to improve. I mean, he could hit for a lot more power, it looks like. He just has easy power, which is kind of surprising. He's not a giant guy. Mm-mm. But he just looks the part of somebody who's going to be a productive outfielder for years to come. I mean, if he's what we project, and so if he doesn't break out at all, that's like an above-average regular with some all-star seasons. And that sounds like a great breakout pick to me because I might be wrong, and he wouldn't ever break out and still get credit for it if he just spikes an all-star game with some high bat up or something. just seems like everyone else in the Cardinals is either established or pretty clearly a role player, but he's kind of in that in-between zone. Yeah, our depth chart projections have him forecast for a 259, 336, 443 line, good for a 113 WRC plus and just shy of three war. And that's again with sort of middling defensive metrics. So we don't project him to be any worse than last year, basically. (laughs) (laughs) 
So he was probably the most important rookie or one of the most important rookies last year. Who would it be this year? Either a holdover or someone who might come up at some point this season? Yeah, so the pool signing really put a wrench in this for me because I would have said Juanepez. Mm-hmm. He projected to play the Pujols role. He was going to be a DH against lefties and a backup first baseman. He has the added advantage of not being 75, so he would also play some outfield. Mm-hmm. But that's not happening anymore. Uh, <laughs> like That just doesn't make any sense to carry two, well, three if you count Goldschmidt, uh, right-handed DH-only types. And so I think that that just leaves Lars Newtbar. They just don't have any other options. Lars Newtbar. If nothing else, he will have the best nutritional bar of <laughs> any major league player because he has trademarked Newtbar and is developing a protein bar. Official protein bar of Major League Baseball, potentially. Certainly the official Newtbar of Major League Baseball. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really probably as surprised as anyone that Lars Newtbar was good in the Major Leagues last year. It didn't feel like that. I mean, he was a 2018 draft pick, but an eighth round draft pick. Not like a marquee guy. He came into. 2021 not having played above double a where he played 100 plate appearances in 2019 and he just crushed triple a and they needed outfield help and he came up and he had a he was an average hitter in the major leagues at you know 23 at the time i i'm very impressed i really didn't expect that out of him and i think he's parlayed that into a role as the fourth outfielder i don't think they're going to try to get a lot out of Corey dickerson in the field and i think that's kind of smart I mean, he's not the worst fielder ever, but he's aging, and they have a young guy like Newt Barr who is, you know, best defender? No, but a defender. I think he'll get plenty of time, and I don't know if they're going to play any other rookies. (laughs) So I'm going to go with him. Well, it's a very strong outfield, and the addition of Corey Dickerson makes it so there aren't a ton of holes in the lineup. I mean, you have Molina, who hopefully is contributing in other ways, and you have DeYoung, and I mean, you have all the defensive specialists who maybe aren't great hitters. Even Tommy Edmond projects, according to Zips, to be a league average hitter on the dot. So between the stars like Arnato and Goldschmidt and apparently Arnato retooled his swing to some extent because he was upset about his low batting average last year, even though he was a pretty productive hitter and player overall. But if he has any more in him and Goldschmidt maintains what he has done in a Cardinals uniform, you know, if Carlson takes a step forward and O'Neill also stays roughly where he was last year. It's a pretty powerful heart of the order, at least, and there aren't too many positions where you are just punting offense entirely. And even at the ones where you kind of are, you're hopefully getting great defense. So Yeah. Right. And Harrison Bader is a better hitter than people give him credit for. Yeah. I think that's it's one of those things where if you're that good of a defensive center fielder, people just assume you're kind of a slap hitter. Mm-hmm. He's not really. He, right. He's got some power. It's like the Nichols Law of center field defense or something. (laughs) So any other interesting storylines? I mean, there is a new manager for one thing, and the exit of the old manager was definitely an interesting storyline. I know you don't cover the Cardinals, so I don't know that you have more insight into that than what beat writers have relayed, but did you draw any conclusions from the abrupt and surprising dismissal of Mike Schilt after the 17-game winning streak and his replacement by Oliver Marmel? Mostly just what the beat writers have reported, because yeah, I don't have any real inside scoops, but I do think it's notable that the Cardinals really want to run the team through the front office, and they picked Schilt because... He was kind of a a front office favorite. And when he 
had views that disagreed with him and expressed them. I mean, in John Mozilek's interview about it, he made that sound like the major thing. I have no idea if that's actually true, if it's just a front. But the Cardinals do like to run things in the image that the front office wants. And they they coordinate around that. And I, I think that you can bet that Marmol is going to be set up to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he's 35 years old, a lot younger than Albert Pujols. And <laughs> yeah. I saw an article recently in St. Louis Post-Dispatch, I think earlier this week, about the fact that Marmol is not naming a closer. He said he won't have a closer. He'll just have the best available pitcher that night, pitch the most important inning, etc. And I feel like we're hearing that a lot of the time and with a lot of teams this spring. And it's not really surprising because teams have generally moved away from a set bullpen hierarchy and an anointed closer who always comes in and exclusively comes in in safe situations. But it is striking just kind of looking around the league and you have, I don't know, the Cardinals, the Mariners, like a lot of teams, this matters more to fantasy players than to me who are trying to figure out where the saves are going to come from. But the point is that often you can't count on any one particular player to give you those saves because they are distributed much more democratically now than they used to. And like not that long ago, this would have caused a huge stir, right? Like not naming a closer and just saying, oh, we're just going to go with the best available arm or play matchups or whatever. I mean, you think back to like Theo Epstein and the Red Sox and the closer by committee and how that just became so controversial and a major storyline of the season. And it sounds silly now. I mean, now almost no one bats an eye when this happens. The Cardinals are just another team that is kind of figuring out the bullpen as they go from day to day and night to night. But it just really does. Because, you know, you think of it in terms of like a decade ago or or not even that long in some cases, maybe like the thinking on that has just really completely flipped. Yeah, that's true. But also Giovanni Gallegos is going to get all the saves. Yeah. <laughs> Say what you want, but uh, he's going to get the saves unless Jordan Hicks, unless Gallegos kind of has a terrible season or gets hurt or Hicks just really impresses. Mm-hmm. Like it's nice lip service to pay and the Cardinals are smart about playing matchups they have a mixture of lefty and righty relievers that they use in high leverage roles, but they're just going to use Gallegos for the saves. They just used Alex Reyes for the saves last year, and I don't think that was anything to do with Schultz's dismissal. I think that the front office is just fine with that. Like Most saves are kind of created equal, and a lot of the Cardinals' best pitchers in relief are you know, pretty good without being elite, and I don't think they actually care too much if the managers do a good job of mixing them up or whether they just get people comfortable with their roles and use them. I think Gallegos is just going to get all the saves. Mm-hmm. Well, worst case scenario, Cardinals fans just get to see Albert Pujols take a lot of curtain calls this season. And great worst case scenario. Best case scenario, probably like 88 to 92 wins again. (laughs) That's probably like not that far from the worst case scenario. I was going to say best case scenario and 50th percentile. (laughs) Yep. All right, let's see. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who is the next team that we're going to talk about in the NL Central? I guess the strongest team of all, in my opinion, would be the Brewers, as it has been of late. So maybe we can talk about them too. Have a favorite offseason move for Milwaukee? Well, let me give you a quote from owner Mark Atanasio. Okay. He said, there were three big names we were hoping for, and we got one. Okay. And Andrew McCutcheon. Oh, sorry, I didn't finish the quote there before you guys reacted. Well, he's a nice guy. I think that is their only offseason acquisition, more or less. So, yeah. Well, how do you classify the Hunter Renfro trade? I guess that that would be the other thing that might get billing here, right? Yeah, that's the uh, Mike Brasso. Yeah. But 
Yeah, I think that you could argue that Renfro is a more impactful signing in that uh, he's more likely to stand in the outfield at least right. once this year. I guess McCutcheon will, but very rarely. Yeah. The team seems to think that McCutcheon's their biggest acquisition. I'm like willing to believe that that's the case, but they basically did very little. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The reason they traded for Renfro was a salary dump. So. Right. Well, did they need to do more? I guess that is something you can answer in the course of explaining their strengths and weaknesses. Yeah, so the biggest strength is, well, I, I said rotation, but it's just all pitching. So the rotation is incredible. Uh, Corbin Burns is my personal favorite starter in baseball right now. Mm-hmm. He's really fun to watch. He does not pitch a ton of innings, but the innings that he pitches are basically almost Jacob DeGrom at this point. Like, I don't know if that's going to continue, but he was essentially like the nearest thing that you'll have to Jacob DeGrom if you're not watching actually DeGrom pitch. He has a similar idea of just like, I have these for him. I, I don't know. He probably has like four or five plus pitches, but he really just leans on his cutter and his slider and his curveball. And they're all really good. They're all hard to hit. They all come out of his hand in a similar way. And he just keeps throwing them and no one can hit them. And it's very fun to watch. His command seems to improve like month to month, start to start, which is also really cool to see. And I don't know if he's ever going to pitch 200 innings in a year, but he doesn't need to. to I mean, he put up seven and a half war last year in 165 innings or something. It's really impressive. And behind that, it doesn't get worse. I mean, Brandon Woodruff, you know, I'm I'm somewhat surprised that there's not more talk about whether Woodruff can hold up to the innings load because he had never pitched more than 120 innings in a year before yeah. last year. And he threw 180. And people think of him as a workhorse. And he is. He's, he's going to pitch more innings, I think, this year than Burns. And he's great. That's a really good top two. I mean, I don't think it's as good as DeGrom and Scherzer, but I do think it's probably better than Nola and Wheeler, which is kind of the only other contender for best very top of rotations that I think is uh, is in the discussion. The rest of the rotation is pretty good behind them too. Freddie Peralta. Freddie Peralta had four war last season, yeah. and I did not know that, even though I love <laughs> Freddie Peralta and watched a lot of Brewers games. He's great. He throws a 92-mile-an-hour fastball and batters swing at it like it's 105 or something. Like, if you haven't watched him pitch, I highly suggest it. He's really fun on the mound. He's doesn't always know where the ball is going. That's that's one downside. But, I don't know, I love the animated little guys who just throw just all kinds of different unhittable pitches. And he's definitely that. Adrian Hauser and Eric Lauer, yeah, I mean, they're, they are very good for fourth and fifth starters. I, I don't think that you would put them in the category of elite in the way that you would these other guys, but that's that's a great 4-5 to have. And then the bullpen is really good. It has their top prospect, Aaron Ashby. Meg, is mm. that right? Yeah. I say Andy every time. No, nope, it's Aaron. You were right. <laughs> Aaron Ashby. All right. And he'll graduate this year. He's He was in the majors last year. He was awesome. He's really good. He's probably long-term a reliever, even though... I don't know. He made he made some starts in the minors last year before they realized they needed him in the bullpen. But their bullpen is just awesome. I haven't mentioned Hader or Williams yet, and you know that's probably the best one-two relief punch that there is. Their pitching is going to be really good. Biggest weakness: I wrote down five positions, and so I'm just going to say offense. <laughs> yeah. They just have so many question marks. And this team is like old. Like this lineup isn't is not young. Yeah, I didn't. I, I never would have guessed this. Lorenzo Cain is older than Andrew McCutcheon. Really? Yeah, he's a year older. I don't know that I would have guessed that either, actually. Because he plays center field, like, well. Right. And McCutcheon did play center field well, but a long time ago. I'm right. kind of surprised by that. Yeah, I'm a little bit worried about Cain's durability. He played well last year when he played. He just missed a lot of time. First base, they have... <laughs> That's a good question. They might have Rowdy Telez, 
they might have Keston Hira. Keston Hira was unplayable last year. Yeah. And he kept yeah. going down to the minors and coming back up and continuing to be unplayable. And so he'd go back down to the minors, come back up and be unplayable. I, I've seen that he's shortened up his mechanics a little bit in spring this year. He has just this giant leg kick. Like a, I don't know, his knee goes up to chest level almost, it seems like, when he is timing a, timing a pitcher's delivery. And it just doesn't look like a major league hitter can do that. But he he was when he first debuted, and it was working. So it looks like he's cleaned up his mechanics a little bit. But it's going to be hard to really count on that. You know, a lot of the the excitement of Keston Hero was that he could stand at second base. And Colton Wong is so much better at that. And apparently just a better hitter. We, we project Wong for a better batting line. That it just it feels really weird that he's part of their plans at first base. But he is. And that's before we get to Hunter Renfro. And Hunter Renfro is really good at hitting lefties. And he's their best outfielder other than Yelich against righties, too. <laughs> that's not that's not really what you want. I was trying to figure out a platoon for him, but you're going to use Jace Peterson there? Like, I think he's worse than Hunter Renfro against righties, even though he's left-handed. It's And he's not a good outfielder, and Hunter Renfro is. It's just an awkward situation where they just don't have enough people to fill the lineup. They have some good hitters, and they have some okay hitters. I think Christian Yelich, who I'll talk about in a little bit, I guess, is, you know, he might be great. And I like Willie Adamas, and I've been impressed by Omar Narvaez. I think Luis Arias is very underrated. And yeah, I didn't name nine positions there. I don't know if you noticed. <laughs> right. And the other positions are not great. Yeah. Well, is there anyone who could potentially break out? Because it sounds like they could use someone. <laughs> I picked Hauser as my breakout pick. Mm-hmm. I have been waiting for Hauser to break out for a little bit. <laughs> it's not the obvious place they need a breakout. And if you wanted to say Luis Arias, you could too. I just think he's already good. Hauser is maybe the perfect Cardinals pitcher. He just has an incredible sinker. Nobody can put the ball in the air against him at all. And if he could develop like one good secondary pitch to go with it, then I think he would be like a low threes ERA guy. And he has a career ERA in the threes over eh, 300 innings, not very long. And a low fours FIP. He's a good pitcher as it is. He walks a few too many and he doesn't strike out enough and it just doesn't matter because you can't put the ball in the air against him. And if he can just figure out a way to keep throwing that sinker and pair it a little bit better with like maybe one of these sweeping sliders that teams seem to be able to teach pitchers very easily now, mm-hmm. he's mainly curveball changeup to go with his sinker and they don't mirror it perfectly. And again, like he doesn't strike guys out. He doesn't get a lot of swings and misses and he's still an effective pitcher. And I think when you start with that, then you're really just one swing and miss away, one swing and miss pitch away from being really good and the Brewers have been pretty good about getting that out of people or figuring out which pitch mix works for them. So I think that there's a chance that he is kind of this year's Freddie Peralta where, yeah, you have the big two, but then also you have this other guy who is a like an all-star caliber pitcher just kind of right next to them that everyone talks about less because his teammates are so talented. Well, I guess maybe we already kind of touched on this with Ashby, but like, are there any rookies that strike you beyond him and Urias isn't rookie eligible anymore, but as potential reinforcement there. No, it's Ashby. Um, yeah. I think that he's both the most important rookie and one of the more interesting rookies in the majors. Like, I don't know what role they'll use him in this year. I think they will attempt to use him as a reliever. Yeah. But they don't have a lot of depth starting pitching-wise. They have five starters who I think are great, and we have them towards the very top of our positional power rankings for that reason. But if one of those guys gets hurt, it's Ethan Small 
or maybe Ashby. Yeah. And he can start. He's he started a lot in the minors before they decided to use him as a multi-inning reliever. He struck out 30% of his batters in the majors last year. We project him for an ERA that's below it's three five six. That's kind of crazy. He's he hasn't thrown very many pitches in the major right. leagues, and we're already pretty sure he's going to be great. His slider's completely unhittable. I mean, if he was your closer, you'd say, "Great, that's awesome. I have a better closing situation than I don't know twenty teams in baseball." And he's their third best reliever, and I think he could probably be their third best starter. He's very talented. I don't really know if he has the pitch mix or the stamina to hold up to starting long term. But having kind of a Swiss Army knife like that just seems like it's going to be really useful for them on the pitching side this year. He can't hit, and, you know, it does still help to add pitching to an already good pitching team. But they really just need some batters, or they need Christian Yelich to figure it out. Yeah, I mean, they had a six-starter rotation last year. I don't know whether they've officially said that they're going to stick with that this year or not, but having someone like Ashby who could potentially slot in there just to protect everyone's arms and keep the innings workloads manageable, maybe they bring that back. It certainly worked well last year, but yes, as you were saying, the big storyline, the question is the offense. We've already gone over it, but it's really what will Yelich be? What will Hura be? I know that the Brewers relieved their hitting coach and assistant hitting coach of their duties <laughs> last year. Don't know if that's going to fix anyone, but hopefully those guys will be better. I guess, you know, if Christian Yelich could have a second breakout, that'd be nice. I guess now we would call a second breakout a bounce back, but something closer, even if it's just in between his recent hitting and his MVP, like one of the best players in baseball or best player in baseball level, that would be a big boon to this batting order. Yeah, if he can put the ball in the air again, I think he'll be able to do it. He still hits the ball hard. He still has great plate discipline. Like That's always been one of his kind of sneaky best skills. He doesn't whiff very often, and he really knows the strike zone. But he just hit the ball on the ground a bunch, and when he was on the Marlins, that's kind of that was kind of the book on him, right? That mm-hmm. it was going to be hard for him to ever be a star, like a true MVP winning star, because he couldn't put the ball in the air. And even though he hit the crap out of it, his swing was just geared to hit it like on the ground or like low line drives. Then for two years, he started hitting the ball in the air and he was the best player in baseball, or at least in the NL. And yeah, now he just stopped. And I don't know, like, I don't know how you fix that. I don't know how you fix it without getting into his head. But if he starts hitting the ball in the air again, this team looks a lot better. And if he doesn't, yeah, I mean, they're still probably division favorites, but it's they don't have a lot of margin. Mm-hmm. Right. And we've seen what this team without the ability to score can do in the postseason. And the answer is not very much, right? Like we we know what that ends up looking like when they have to be dealing with teams that aren't just in the central. Well, it's a five game series, I, I, you know. Yeah, that help. But Brandon Woodruff can hit a home run off Clayton Kershaw. But yeah, I don't know. They could pinch hit him. But yeah, <laughs> he might be. I think I might prefer Woodruff to some of the people they'll be running out there in big spots. It's <laughs> yeah. it's dire. Yeah. Well, and I'm really curious, like, what version of Adamus we're going to get. I also like him a lot, but, like, the the contrast between what he was able to do in Tampa versus what he did once he moved to Milwaukee is pretty stark, and I don't think we can attribute all of that to the lights being a problem. I was going to say, the do you know the contact lenses thing? Yeah. <laughs> so there's, like, that part of it, you know, it's just disconcerting when some of the, the highlights from last year are themselves, like, at least subject to, you would imagine, some modest amount of regression, if not, if not more than that, so... I think Luis Arias is the place where they're going to get offense that, I mean, they got last year, actually, but they weren't counting on it. Right. 
he he batted almost 600 times, hit 249, 345, 445. That's pretty good. That's like 10% above average. I think he'll probably do that again. That was a that trade was kind of panned for the Brewers when he didn't work out in 2020, but I think it's going to work out really well and he can play second, third and short. But yeah, that when you're like, "Oh, here's the highlight of our offense, a middle infielder who hit 10% above average." You just need more. Mm-hmm. I actually read a report that even though David Stearns is signed through the 2023 season, if the Brewers were to contradict Dave Roberts and win the pennant this year, he would then become a free agent or at least be eligible to become a free agent, which I guess would be the opposite of a silver lining. But on the other hand, what do you want David Stearns for if not to win a pennant? So I guess right. you live yeah. with the idea that Steve Cohen or someone might go out and get David Stearns. If he gets you to the World Series, then he has done his job in Milwaukee. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Take your pick, Reds or Cubs, because they are neck and neck in the Fangrass playoff odds, like 75.2 projected wins versus 75.3, 7.6 versus 7.4% playoff odds. And I guess they are both deflating and disappointing in somewhat similar ways, although on slightly different timelines. So which one would you care to discuss first? Let's do the Cubs. All right. Well, they actually did have some fun offseason moves. Yeah. So that's something. Yes. <laughs> so I think the Cubs, I think their biggest offseason acquisition was Marcus Stroman, but it's close because Seiya Suzuki is also great. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine that they both won't be on the next good Cubs team unless this rebuild takes forever. Stroman's around for two or three years, Suzuki for longer. They both seem like they're going to be great. And I think Stroman really fits what the Cubs have been trying to do with pitching. I don't understand it. They, I mean, Stroman throws a little bit too hard to be a Cubs starter. But the Cubs like to get these like 80s sinker ball guys, and Stroman is just the better version of that. Like he really figured out how to have really good command in 2021, and that that always looked like something he would be able to figure out. He's very athletic. He repeats his delivery well, and once he did, man, he's really good. I think that he'll be the best Cubs pitcher, obviously, but I think he might just be the best Cubs player this year. And he didn't cost a ton. It seems like he's really been liking the team like it just seems like everything clicked here and yeah they're not projected to make the playoffs and i would be very surprised if they did but i mean they might next year and i think signing someone like that to kind of keep in range and also signing someone who if it really comes down to it and things completely fall apart they can trade him if they need to i think it was a really good signing by them uh suzuki's obviously going to be the most interesting story or question so we can get to him then all right strengths weaknesses their biggest strength, I said fastballs that played better than their velocity, just kind of in keeping with the other thing. Yeah, although that was kind of like the redeeming factor about the rotation heading into last year, right? Right. <laughs> that didn't work, didn't work yeah. out so well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the thing that they have going for them this year is that they're not trying to do it with 82-mile-an-hour fastballs that play like 87-mile-an-hour fastballs. Right. That doesn't work. Yeah. Like, like, I can do the math. That, that's still too slow. Mm-hmm. I think that adding Stroman and presumably getting Caleb Killian for a chunk of the year is going to be a real difference maker. Killian was, I don't actually know if he was the highlight of the return for Chris Bryant. Meg, maybe you can, uh, Mm. he was in there. He was in there for sure. But he wasn't a super prospect before last year. No. And then he started throwing a lot harder and put up a mid two ZRA in a bunch of work in in the giant system. Doesn't walk anybody, strikes out a decent amount. I went to the fall league and was awesome. And I think he threw, I don't know, five or six perfect innings in the championship game. And now he just throws 95. 
So yeah. he was supposed to be like an upper 80s command before control Cubs kind of guy who like looked like his fastball worked a little bit better than uh, what he had. And yeah, uh, now instead he's just a guy who throws league average and who has incredible command and whose fastball plays better than his command. We don't actually have him projected for that much playing time this year, but I think there's a good chance that he kind of sneaks in there anyway. Like he's just too good if he keeps pitching like he has been to not get used in the majors. And I think that he just fits with the way that they like to approach pitching pretty well too. Mm-hmm. And what about the weaknesses? So I don't know what people have done on your other division preview podcasts where teams that aren't really trying to win that hard, like they have holes in the team. And yeah. that's more interesting on the Brewers when <laughs> some of them have said ownership is the right. weakness. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think it's their bullpen just because, like the holes in their lineup are mostly there to try out new guys who could be useful, right? Right. Like there's a hole in their lineup because Rafael Ortega is DHing, but I don't know. He might be good, and they're giving a lot of playing time to Patrick Wisdom and Frank Schwindel, and I don't know how good those guys are going to be, but they might be good. I'm fine with those. Uh, Jason Hayward's kind of a sunk cost, right? But the bullpen really bad. Yeah, it's really bad. It's just like a bunch of guys that you're you think oh he's still pitching, right? Like. I mean, Rowan Wick is not that, but he's 30 somehow. Uh, David Robertson, Michael Givens, Chris Martin, Daniel Norris, Jesse Chavez. I'm just reading down. I wasn't like cherry picking the guys who are old and who I didn't realize were still going. That's just their depth chart in order. Yeah. They, they just have a lot of pitchers who couldn't, like, didn't latch on anywhere else. And they're going to try them because if they work out, awesome. They're going to get some prospects for them at the deadline. And if they don't, I mean, who cares? They're going to win 75 games. It's not a big deal if uh, if Chris Martin blows a save. And I I don't hate that as a plan for them, but man, I, I think that their bullpen might be quite bad this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's one of the more interesting storylines to me to jump ahead a little bit is those three guys who really surprised last season, Ortega and Schwindel and Wisdom. Yeah. All of them were comfortably above average, if not even better than that last year. And that was just kind of a collective surprise. And yeah. so if there's a lot of regression in store for those three, then things could get kind of ugly. But if they can maintain some semblance of their performance last year, then things might be unexpectedly competitive. So that's one of the bigger, more interesting questions to me. And I have no idea what the answer is. Yeah. And to your point, Ben, I think uh, I should say Clemens, like you want them to spend this time answering questions like that's that's what a team in this state should do. Now, we can dispute yeah. the necessity of this state of affairs. Right. And I think that we would. Plus, all those guys are 30. Right. It's not like the next gen. Yeah. But. So, the, yeah, it's not like, you know, you're looking to, you know, Schwindel to be part of the next great Cubs team. But if you have an organizational willingness to like try guys out and cycle through some dudes and see who's, you know, at least allowing you to put together the roster you need to get to that next good team, like that's time well spent. If you told me that one of Schwindel or Wisdom was a DH on the next good Cubs team, I think I would believe you. Like, I don't think it's a likely outcome, but it's It's certainly a possible outcome. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, why not find out? And also if somebody wants a big, bashing first baseman and Schwindel's having a good year and they offer you a good prospect like great yeah. that's just found money I mean he, they literally claimed him on waivers yeah. in July of last season yep so they were all breakouts last year <laughs> is there anyone on the horizon who could duplicate that performance this year so I don't think Suzuki counts for this so I I excluded him I don't really know how a breakout would work for someone with no major league track record 
But I picked Nick Madrigal, and yeah. Meg, Meg can tell you I love Madrigal. Yeah. He's one of my favorite players. I'm Me too. I'm too high on him. I I freely admit that. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're appropriately enthused. Plus, if anyone wants to just go read some like fun writing, they should go look at Ben's second base positional power ranking entry on Madrigal, which was one of my favorites I have edited so far. Uh, yeah, I just I think he's great, and this is another. This is a different kind of cheating on a breakout pick where his carrying tools are so strong, like he never strikes out, just doesn't strike out. And he plays incredible defense, and he's a great base runner. And if he just spikes one thing in any category, it's going to look like a breakout, even if right. it's just random variation. So like if he has a high BABIP season, we're going to think, oh my God, like this guy's batting 350. <laughs> if he has a season where he just runs into some home runs, like the wind in Wrigley is blowing out. He's not going to barrel the ball up. That, that's not how it works. Um, but he might, you know, loft some over the IV and we'll be like, oh, my God, he's added power. It's just so easy for him to have kind of an accident in one place that's not really a, a concerted game change that makes him a star because he just does the stuff that is less variable. Strikeout rate is not variable year to year. If you don't strike out much, you're not going to strike out much. Defense is not variable year to year. Good defenders tend to provide good defense. I mean, now our, our measurement of it with advanced metrics is pretty noisy, but I think that's getting a little bit better. And base running, not very variable. And he just does all these things that are very stable quite well. And I just think that makes it easier for someone to be a breakout. And I mean, if he improves on any of their skills, then yeah, he could, he could just be an all-star every year. Love it. <laughs> that would be wonderful. I mean, I don't think it's likely, but he could. Rookie? That's Suzuki, and he's yes. also just the most interesting everything about the Cubs. I yes. avoided talking about it until the end because okay. I wanted Go to ahead. mention all these other people so that we didn't have to just talk about him the whole time. <laughs> I mean, how good do you think Seiya Suzuki is going to be? I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, I don't know either. We talked to Dan about that when he was on here, but hard to say. I mean, the projections are not that great, right? Well, but... Some of them are incredible. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah, it depends on the system, Zips I guess. Zips thinks he's going to be one of the best outfielders in baseball. Depends on the scouts, and <laughs> yeah, you will get the stats he put up in MPB, and your eyes get pretty big. Or Steamer, rather. Steamer has him hitting right. for a 140 WRC+, plus. Yeah. and then you know the bat has him hitting for a 107, <laughs> and he's hilarious. I don't know if you've watched just mm -hmm. anything he's put on the internet or any of anyone in Chicago's interactions with him. He's great. He's a character. He just seems like a ton of fun i i couldn't be more impressed and i have seen him bat one time it's <laughs> that's really strange like he could be nick castellanos except with a really plus glove and hopefully with like less of a seeming ability to curse people <laughs> yes yeah I, I can't blame castellanos for that he's never been no, doing anything i know wrong. i'm just i'm just joking yeah but like he could also be um like the short side of a d8 platoon i just i have no idea yeah. And I think that's really cool. I like that I have no idea. I like that he's the rookie of the year favorite, right? It, yeah. He has probably. to be. I, Gosh, yeah, I suppose so. I can't imagine someone I'd pick over him. He's like he's guaranteed to have a full year of starting. Right. The Cubs are never going to bench him. They're yeah. not going to play any service time games. And right. he's just going to get endless chances to hit. I, I think he's probably going to be the rookie of the year. He's also obviously the most important rookie. If he's bad, that's you know not good for the Cubs. I just don't think he will be. 
Although I guess he has, you know, in some ways the situation is an enviable one because if there is some adjustment that needs to go on there, like the stakes of him having that adjustment on this Cubs team are very low because they're not going anywhere anyway. So if he has a, you know, a so-so year as he acclimates, like that's that's fine. That's not the end of the world because you're not really... His production is not the difference between them getting into the wild card or not. You know? Oh, absolutely. And it also helps that, you know, his 30th percentile is probably a rookie of the year favorite. Like, right, right. <laughs> you don't need to be that good to win rookie of the year. I think he's just like, it's a really good spot for him if he's not perfectly sure how good he's going to be. Right. And also, like, it's just a good spot. Like, I think it can be very fun to play baseball in Chicago, especially yeah. on the Cubs when they're winning. I mean, the White Sox are really cool, but I don't know. The city seems to not get behind them as much. When the Cubs are winning, that sounds like a great time to be a Cubs player. Yeah, and if you're the if you're the, not that he'll be the the lone bright spot because I think you've mentioned a couple of guys here who will also be fan favorites. But like if you're the most uh, exciting position player on that team, like that's that's a good time, even if the team is kind of stinky. Yeah, I think it's great. And I guess one other storyline to monitor is the status of Wilson Contreras, who yeah. is entering his walk year, and the rumors about trades continued to fly right up until the lockout and possibly after that. So maybe he follows the rest of the Cubs who were traded last year out the door at some point this season, depending on how the Cubs are faring. But he has been very good, and I know a lot of Cubs fans would be sorry to see him go. That would kind of complete the house cleaning, I guess, but... Brace yourselves for that. I guess Cubs fans yeah. are used to saying goodbye yeah. to people. So definitely an awkward sign that they did not agree on an ARB number. Yeah. Mm, yeah. That doesn't that doesn't feel great for the likelihood of having him there past this year. I'm curious to see I guess one of the big questions for me with this team is like what do either based on the production that we observe in the roster or on the way that the front office conducts itself, like are we going to have a better sense of what they think their time horizon is to being competitive again? And I think by the end of the year, we'll kind of have a a better sense of it. Because Ben Lindbergh, when you and I talked about the Suzuki signing, I think we were both a little bit surprised that Chicago ended up being the destination just based on what we were assuming would be their trajectory to return to competitiveness. And so I'm I'm curious if we get more you know, indicators one way or the other in terms of how long they think this rebuild or step back or, you know, brief interregnum before they own a soccer team is going to is gonna take them. Meg, I tried to watch a game of every team that was in this preview, a uh, spring training game. Oh. Have you seen Reginald Preciado? He yeah. looks like he is 12. Yeah. It is, it was disconcerting. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, I mean, some of their, some of their guys are a, a little, a little bit away, but. I mean, he seems great. Yeah. But yeah. Like, I, I am very curious how it's going to work because it wouldn't shock me if they were good in 2023 or 2024. They have yeah. some interesting guys there and they clearly have the capability to spend. And I think they will again. I actually don't think that it's a terrible idea. Like, it, I know it's really fun to dunk on the rickets. I've done my fair share of it. But they they spend when the team's good. Now they're they're quick to slash it down, do rebuilds to save yeah. some money when it isn't. But if they get good, they'll spend more money. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if it makes you feel better, Ben Preciado is not even 19 yet, I don't think. Yeah. I mean, I know he's young, but wow, he looks young. He looks younger than he is, and he's young. Yeah. 
So we do have a running joke on this podcast historically about not talking about the Reds, but we are obligated to talk about them during this segment, although many Reds fans would probably be okay if we skip the Reds right (laughs) now, (laughs) but we shouldn't. We should actually talk about the Cincinnati Reds. Best offseason move. Boy, that is a tough one. I guess it's actually I had little trouble with this one. The Reds got a top prospect that the Red Sox had their eyes on for years and years and years. Financial flexibility. Yeah, exactly. It's that or like the deal where they got the best prospects back. I guess you're talking about like the best subtraction from this roster this offseason. I mean, Tommy Pham is their best major league acquisition. That's yeah. I think their recent signing of him made that pretty clear. I think Brandon Williamson is probably their best long-term acquisition. He's yeah. a top 100 kind of Aaron Ashby type. He's I don't know if he's a starter. I don't know if he's a reliever. He's good, though. Yeah. But, yeah, no, they didn't get anything. If I can just do a plug, if Reds fans are not familiar with Williamson, there's footage of him from literally the day before he was traded to the Reds from Seattle's backfields that is on the Fangraphs uh, YouTube channel. So you can go take a peek at that and then read his top 100 report and feel not better, but like, you know, you might be excited about Brandon Williamson. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I think in terms of long term acquisitions for the team, it's Williamson. He's he's really good. Like. They actually got, I know they gave up a lot. He is not as good as Jesse Winker. He's not as good as Eugenio Suarez right now, but he's good. And I think that a lot of their other kind of trades, like the Sonny Gray trade got them an 18-year-old who might be good sometime, but you probably don't care about that. If you're a Reds fan listening to this, or you won't for a few years at least. So I think Williamson is the way to go for that. Yeah. Strengths-wise, it's, (laughs) I actually didn't have trouble picking this. The, The biggest strength of the Reds is the right side of their infield. Right. And both of those players are awesome. Joey Votto is great. I mean, I don't know I don't know how good he'll be this year. Probably pretty good. He he seemed like he learned how to hit for power again. Mm-hmm. But he's also just a delight. And he has Instagram now. Yep. It just sound everything. Sound yeah. TikTok. Yeah. I I have no notes. Joey Votto's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> and Jonathan India, I did not think he would be this good. I don't really think anyone thought he'd be this good, but yeah. he was and He's played like three professional seasons. He's pretty young. He's 25. Yeah, you know, he was a senior sign, I think, or maybe a junior sign. But he doesn't matter. He's still kind of the majors at a young age, and he killed it last year. Like he was just incredible. I was really impressed, and it didn't look fake. You know, like there are rookies who put up good numbers, and I watch them, and I think I don't know. Like it was just Babbitt or like he's getting more credit for his defense than he needs to, or it just doesn't look like pitchers are struggling with him they'll figure him out he looked like really good he looked like a guy who's gonna hit second through fourth of the reds for a long time and just be good and that's very impressive i don't think anyone really saw that coming before last year and i know that the eugenio suarez at shortstop thing was just an abject disaster and might have ruined his season but it got them india into the majors and they found out that this guy who we all thought was a year or two away was just not only ready to play, but ready to be an all-star. So that's really cool. And I think that I don't really have a ton of doubt that he and Votto will be kind of the best two players in the Reds this year. (laughs) Biggest weakness, though, (laughs) is a big weakness, and that's the rotation. And uh, it's it's not great. It wasn't a huge problem before both Luis Castillo and Mike Miner got hurt. Yeah. But Luis Castillo and Mike Miner both got hurt, and I kind of think they're just going to trade Castillo if he gets healthy. Like, it doesn't, the way that they're tearing the team down, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to keep him. He's going to be a free agent soon. 
and they're not they're not going to the playoffs this year. I don't think Tyler Maley is nice. You know, I don't think he's a good ace. I would prefer to have somebody better as my top pitcher, which is something that we'll uh, we'll repeat frequently in this division. Yeah, but he's a good pitcher. I have no doubts about that. But I don't know. Like, do you know who Vladimir Gutierrez is? I do now. Pitcher on the Reds. <laughs> he is. Uh, we have him in roster resource as their number two starter. Uh, behind him, we have Raver San Martin. Yeah, sure. Raver? Yeah. I don't know. That's that's a tough one. Nick it's... Lodolo, who's a, an NRI, is in there. Yeah. I've heard of him. We had Tony Santillan until he started relieving because he wasn't going to be a starter. Hunter Green is very exciting. Yeah. So, you know, they, it's not like they have nobody. And Hunter Green throws really hard. Really hard. I don't know, 104 maybe yeah. at the top end. He, he throws really hard. He has secondaries? Uh, some. I don't really know if he's going to end up as a starter. But if he doesn't, then he'll be a great closer. And it kind of looks like he's going to end up as a starter. He's getting starting work. Uh, he's never pitched in a professional game without starting, like a game that they keep score on. I'm sure he has in spring training. And if he comes up, then that'll be really interesting. But that's like a key part of their rotation being just bad instead of really bad. And that's not good. You don't want your top prospect to be, man, if this guy works out and comes up and pitches 100 innings this year, then our rotation will be 20th in baseball. Yeah. <laughs> and that's kind of where they are. I think it's just, it's, it's not a great look to try to like they had such a good rotation and it's just falling apart in such an odd way yeah i mean i have to imagine that if if castillo were healthy he'd just be gone already like i don't think you do these other moves unless you intend to move him so at least by august assuming that his you know his arm is intact i imagine he'll be on another team i mean here i think we have to say ownership as a weakness like the the way that they are conducting themselves is this is not running a competitive ball club like the the miley stuff is is bad moving Eugenio Suarez just to get salary relief and one of the guys you get back you know has a shoulder problem <laughs> is not good like that's that's bad too just to to get salary relief on a team that doesn't have a huge payroll to begin with I mean I know Chase Petty has his his champions but you're moving Sonny Gray for a highly divisive prospect it's just like this isn't a serious organization. Yeah. For me, like the biggest story around the Reds this year, like the thing that I'm wondering is what is their plan? Like right. they're just doing things in a lot of different directions. And like they signed Tommy Pham. I think that's a, I think they're going to pay him less than the value he creates in the field. I think that's a pretty good signing. Yeah. If you were going to sign Tommy Pham, that's using some of your financial flexibility that you acquired by trading away Jesse Winker, who's better than Tommy Pham. Sorry, Tommy. Jesse Winker's great though. Like, yeah. There's room to be worse than Jesse Winker and still be good. But you traded him away to save money and then you spent it acquiring Mike Miner and Tommy Pham. Right. But then like, so that if you're acquiring Mike Miner, then you're probably and adding money to do it. And clearly money matters to the Reds. Then you'd like to win this year. But then they traded Sonny Gray for an 18 year old prospect. But then I don't really <laughs> like if you're doing the raise, we do a lot of transactions and we have a goal and we just win a bunch of transactions and it adds up. You know, it's one red paperclip and pretty soon we have, I don't know, what are the red paperclip I end up with? House? I think a house. Yeah. Yeah, that, that can work if you're really committed to it. But it doesn't work when you're just like all over the place and then you're doing that. But then two years ago, you were like purposefully overpaying for Mike Moustakas. Like you can do both of those things, but you can't do them at the same time. And I think you're kind of witnessing two different plans of how you should run a team kind of colliding without any forethought given to how it should work. And I, I'm just very curious how they get out of this because it, it's pretty confusing. Yep. 
<laughs> well, I guess green gives you your rookie. Is there any other breakout potential here? Yes. Um, they have a player who I think could be like a long-term Reds mainstay. That's Jose Barrera. Mm-hmm. And he's not a rookie. He graduated in 2021. And he's going to miss the first, I don't know, four or five weeks of the season with surgery to, I think, remove his handmate. Yeah, it's a handmate surgery. I don't know what the I don't know exactly what the one, surgery but... is, but handmate surgery. <laughs> yeah. That's not good. Hand injury is really bad for hitters. You break it if you don't have one. <laughs> right. <laughs> you can't break it again, at least. That's true. Um, it's probably not good for his production this year. And so maybe that argues against making him my breakout pick. But man, he is an impressive defender. And that is something the Reds could badly use at shortstop. He hit a ton in 2021 in the minors. He hit... So much at double A that they sent him to triple A and he had so much at triple A that I don't know, they kept using Eugenio Suarez at short for a lot of the year and then Kyle Farmer, who's a catcher. And there's not a lot of <laughs> good through line here, but Jose Barrera, when he comes back, could be great. And I think that that is not the case with a lot of the Reds players who are not already good. Like I considered Melee, but that's cheating, right? He's kind of a breakout already. He broke out last year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's more cheating than the the ones that I'm willing to cheat on. He was quite <laughs> good last year. And I think that Barrero could be an above average shortstop who is like an average or even maybe a little better hitter. He has a lot of power. He, he's got kind of approach issues, but it looked like he was straightening those out in the minors in, uh, last year. And if he figures out how to be an average hitter, he's going to be a very good player. And if he's better than average with the bat, then awesome. Well, I am looking forward to seeing the second season and really the full season of this late career slugger model of Joey Votto because he didn't really even heat up until June last year. He started slow and then he just debuted this new approach and was one of the best hitters in baseball for the rest of the season. And it was so much fun to watch and it's so intentional. Everything he does on the field is pretty intentional and it paid off. And I think Eno just did a series of bold predictions for this season at The Athletic, and one of them was Joey Votto hits 40 homers, which does sound bold in that he's never had a 40-homer season, and he's 38 and a half years old, and yet you look at his, like... 657 slugging or something in the second half of last season like if he had started doing what he did later in the year earlier in the year instead then he would have easily gotten to 40 homers he ended up at 36 so I don't know whether age catches up to him again or the league adjusts or what but he seems to have found a new approach or return to an old approach that really suits him well at this point in his career and it really Boys, my spirits, because I always thought like, oh, he's so cerebral and he's so smart about hitting, like he'll just be able to beat aging. And then it looked like he was succumbing to aging for quite a while. But no, it turned out he just set his mind to a different type of approach and he did beat aging at least for a while there. So I'm hoping that that keeps up and presumably he will be on the Reds all year Even if they do trade Castillo, I don't know if he would even entertain the idea of being moved, whether he would want to go to a winner or whether they would want to do that. I think there's some chance he'd accept the trade to the Blue Jays, but (laughs) I think that might be it. Yeah, but wherever he is, I look forward to watching him hit and hopefully Joey Votto will bang and rake all season long. So that takes us, I suppose, to the Pirates. (laughs) We are bound to talk about every team in this division preview segment and series. And this is coming hot on the heels of O'Neill Cruz being optioned to AAA. Yep. Which uh, seems like an appropriate lead in to the Pittsburgh Pirates 2022 season preview. So 
Off-season move? <laughs> yeah, so their biggest off-season acquisition, Daniel Vogelbach. Yeah. He is big. Like, he is big. <laughs> he, he's a large gentleman. He, he hits baseballs, and it works out, and he's an, about an average player, I'd say, on average. Yeah. But like, overall, once you take everything into account, he is the biggest off-season acquisition that any team made. I, <laughs> he's listed at six foot two seventy. Come on, beat that. If you're not counting him... And I don't think he actually should. It's Zach Thompson. And I like Zach Thompson a ton. We'll talk about him more later, I think. But he's cool. Like, he's also tall. He's not quite so uh, quite so wide. And I guess uh, now that I think about it, Vogelbach isn't tall. So Zach Thompson, not very much like Dan Vogelbach. But, like, he might be their best pitcher right now. And I worry a little bit that he just happened upon the Marlins machine that makes people good for three months. Like, they did it with Sandy Alcantara, although it seems like he's just good. Did it with Pablo Lopez. And I I do worry a little bit if that won't pan out, because we didn't think he was much of a prospect heading into last year. Yeah. But, man, he looked the part, I thought. He threw 75 major league innings last year, and he's, like, really tall. He gets, like, the right plane for his pitches somehow. He's kind of cutter forward. I don't know if it's a cutter or a slider. It's one of those in-between pitches, and he just throws it a lot. It's basically his primary pitch now, and it just works. Like, batters didn't do very well against it. He didn't overly struggle with command, which I think was always something we worried about with him, that prospect evaluators worried about with him overall. But it looks like he's just gotten better at that. Like, even in the minors uh, in the past few years, his walk numbers have just been trending the right way. It's weird to think that you could trade Jacob Stallings and get your team's best pitcher, but I, maybe that's an indictment of the Pirates starting pitching. Yeah. Zach Thompson's good. Like He's, he's a good player. I, I think that that trade... He's not the only player they got in that trade. They got two other prospects back, too. I think that was a really good trade for them. It was uh, Kyle Nicholas and Connor Scott. I don't actually know as much about them. But I think that's their biggest offseason acquisition, and it was a pretty good one, in my opinion. All right. Well, we started on a positive note. <laughs> Strengths and weaknesses? So... I'm annoyed because I wrote this before they sent O'Neill Cruz down. But they're going to call him up after he works on his defense for enough days to miss the Super 2 deadline. So that's yep. good. Yeah. Um, Although, if that defense is in the outfield, <laughs> that would be sort of sad, too. When he comes up, he's going to play shortstop. I'm, yeah. I'm 100% sure, basically. 95% sure. If they played him at shortstop last year, the O'Neill Cruz story works a lot better if he's a shortstop. And it, he's a lot more of a special talent if he can play short. Yeah. But the left side of their infield, Cruz getting there in a few months or whatever. Uh, it's just great. Cabrian Hayes, another one of my personal favorite players. He's Nolan Arnado. Like, that's that's what you should do in your head when you're trying to think of who he most resembles. He is, I think, the best young third-base defender in the game. It's really fun to watch. He's just perfect reflexes out there, cannon arm, really great. I, I kind of doubted all the defensive reports I heard on him before he came up. Because I was like, I don't know. Like, it's... It's so rare that you have so many good defensive third basemen all at once, and maybe there's just some creep. And no, like, he's he's just the real deal. Yeah. If if it weren't for the fact that Arnado kind of has the uh, the prestige stranglehold on NL Gold Gloves, he's actually never lost one. I think Hayes might have topped him last year. I guess he also missed some time, so that yeah, maybe held him back. But yeah. he's really good defensively. And offensively, when he puts the ball in the air, he's great. He's one of these guys who doesn't have like a perfect swing plane and approach tailored to his strengths, but I mean, he's got a lot of bat speed. He 
walks enough. He doesn't strike out too much. If he could put the ball in the air more often, he would be like a, a MVP candidate type guy every year, I think. And he kind of was, right? Like when he played 20 games in 2020 and was incredible. He had a 200 WRC plus. So, okay, probably. He won't do that. But but he has a chance to be really good and he has a chance to be the, the foundation of the next great Pirates team. And that's third base. O'Neill Cruz at shortstop. They could have a really good left side of the infield once they have everybody up. That's a big change from the Pirates of a few years ago when they were kind of in the early stages of tanking and had no exciting players. And I didn't even mention Brian Reynolds. If he's playing left field, then the whole left side of the diamond is good for them. He's maybe going to get traded, but he's awesome. And he's another guy where I was kind of doubting of the of like whether this package would work out for an offensive player being good. And yeah, it, it is. It it works. <laughs> Hits the ball really hard, doesn't strike out. It all kind of plays together. I you know, for a team that is really bad, and the Pirates are really bad, they have some really good players. And I think that yeah. gives them hope for how good they'll be in the future. Yeah. And they also have a great farm system, which yep, maybe sure isn't do. a strength for twenty twenty two necessarily, but it's a strength in that it gives Pirates fans some solace and something to <laughs> dream on and watch for a while and think about all of those guys getting good and then leaving because Bob Nutting won't pay them. But Right. So I don't know what's gonna happen there, but for a team that is kind of down and out, I'd be more interested in being a Pirates fan this year than a Reds fan because there's there's a lot of fun players here, and you can kind of see the direction they're going. Yeah, I, I'm I was more optimistic as I looked through the Pirates than I thought I would be based on you know the Pirates. Right. Uh, so for biggest weakness, I just said yes. Yeah. So I, I think we could just skip that one. Like <laughs> yeah. they're not trying to win a bunch of games this year, and so they have a lot of players where you're like, huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gosh. Well, and Pirates fans didn't have to edit the Pirates list, so they get to enjoy the farm system without having done any of the work involved in here. Let me just say that Roster Resource has Vogelbach leading off for them. Yeah. That would be fun. I think that yeah. would be fun. Prototypical lead author. <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah. And we like I had not I had not like grappled with like Ben Gamble is still on this team. And that's fine, you know. <laughs> Even some of their players who aren't good on the big league roster are at least like seem like, you know, fun guys. Like Cole Tucker seems like a good hang. So uh you at least have people you can like, but yeah, yeah. you you really got to get invested in like like you said like Hayes being as good in the field and probably better at the plate because hopefully his wrist is fully healed. Oh yeah, I forgot to mention that he had a wrist injury and right. that can definitely sap your ability to put the ball in the air. Yeah, it hurts so time you do. yeah, so I think that you know, and I know that he's a little dinged up with an ankle thing right now, but you know, if you're a Pirates fan and you're looking at Hayes and you're like, what happened? Like you know, he he probably isn't a 200 WRC plus hitter, <laughs> but he's also probably not what he was last year when he yeah. was still compromised. So and if he's a 100 WRC plus hitter. Oh, I yeah, would that defense, to forget it. He's yeah. just really fun to watch play He's defense just really great. and very valuable because of it. Yep. So is Mitch Keller just the honorary Pirates breakout pick <laughs> until he breaks out finally or we all give up? I somehow forgot to pick a breakout pick for the Pirates. I know <laughs> I think your story about Mitch Keller is uh, or your interview with him, I guess, mm-hmm. was great. I've listened to that many times, believe it or not. <laughs> and cuz I don't know, I found it really interesting and I found him really interesting and mm-hmm. yeah i don't know uh he's I, I hope really hard these days he's throwing really hard he threw like 99 right yeah yeah 
I never know what to make of his peripherals because either he's like way out pitching his FIP or he's way under pitching his FIP or <laughs> one of these years it's just going to equalize and maybe that'll be a good thing. Yeah, if I had to pick someone who I think is likely to have a better season than projected, I would go with Bryce Wilson just because I think the stuff's there. You know, you could do worse. If Bryce Wilson is an average pitcher, like let's say he pitches 100 innings and puts up one war, that will 6x the amount of war he's accumulated in the major leagues over, you know, more than zero seasons, over four different seasons. So I think that would count as a breakout. And if he's just okay, I think that's doable. He's got, I don't know, does he have two usable pitches? He has at least one usable pitch. And I think that, I think that and a good approach and appropriate shielding from like getting put into bad situations, like going out there to face an order the third time when you're scuffling, like just generally facing wrong-handed hitters at high leverage points, that kind of stuff. If you combine good approach, one good pitch, and good usage, I think that he could be an average player, and I think that would be a big deal because they, again, like didn't they didn't get him for much. Like that seems to be a theme of a lot of guys that I like for breakouts is that, hey, like this has found money, and if it works, it's going to be really good for the team. All right. Well, to wrap this up, any rookies you want to highlight, or is there such a thing as an interesting story surrounding the Pirates this season? I think there are several. I'm going to just ignore the whole cruise thing. I, we get it. Like, yeah, they're, they're manipulating his service time so they can pay him less money because, uh, I don't know, that's, that's in pursuit of Bob Nutting having more money in the long run. Can I take a second, though, to note that it feels particularly galling to me to do that when they will, there's a non-zero chance they just end up trading him anyway, right? Like, not immediately, but, like, this isn't a team that, anyway, it doesn't matter. If you told me that he isn't going to be on this team, like, seven years from now, I'd be like, yeah, sure. Right. I think it's more transparent than usual since they promoted him at the end of last year. Right. And then are like... (laughs) Uh, he crap. He he looked like he belonged, so he needs to work on the defense. Right, and yeah, it works a lot better when he hasn't yeah. already. Yeah, it, done that. It's it's really bad, and we're never gonna get a straight answer out of them, right? Because that it'll be using a grievance immediately. But it's it's very clear what they're doing, and I hope that he does file a grievance because he should because it's ridiculous. Yep. So I don't know if he's gonna be the most important rookie. He is actually the betting favorite for rookie of the year, but those people may uh, may underestimate the Pirates' ability to hold him down. Yeah. I do think that Diego Castillo, and to a lesser extent Hoyt Park, who is not a rookie anymore, I believe he used up his eligibility last year, they could both be pretty interesting. Yeah, he graduated. They could both be pretty interesting rookies. They're both kind of low-power-looking guys who the Pirates got from the Yankees last year, and they both had big power breakouts in 2021. And that's strange, and... Castillo, at least, did not continue it at all with the Pirates. (laughs) He didn't play a ton after reaching the Pirates. But if one of Parker Castillo works out, then I think things look a lot better for them. Because they have this situation right now where I consider Hayes pretty much a lock to be a a good, productive major leaguer. And I think Cruz is likely. Not not a given. Like, it might just not work. He's really tall. And, like, he could just break, kind of. And he swings and misses a lot. Nick Gonzalez, who's their presumptive second baseman of the future, I like him quite a bit. I think that there is a lot of risk in Nick Gonzalez, and I didn't think that was the case coming out of college. And it's easy to picture all your top prospects as like obviously going to work out and there's no spots for these guys. But having one or two guys like Park and Castillo click 
and be above average bats, even if one of your guys doesn't pan out, is really important, particularly if you're not going to spend any money. And so I think that'll matter a lot for the team. All right. Well, no one can say that we did not discuss the Pirates, because we definitely did. And we didn't even give them short shrift. We spent a reasonable amount of time, I think, on the Pittsburgh Pirates, probably more than Mr. Nutting deserves, because the Pirates are indeed nutting. They are the prototypical team that is nutting. They are. I still have, I still, I carry regret in my heart. You know, I carry it in my heart every day. So... That concludes our NL Central preview. It is not the most exciting or talented division, but it deserves equal time. And even if it's not the most talented division, there still could be an exciting race as there was at times last year. So thank you, as always, Ben, for helping us through this. And everyone follow him on Twitter. Read him at Fangraphs regularly. And check the show page for links to various things that we have discussed today. And I guess it's time for us to crack open a cold cerveza and enjoy ourselves. Oh, I'm in. All right. Well, that concludes the only podcast episode of early this week that did not talk about Will Smith, at least until I just said Will Smith. We discussed neither the actor nor the catcher who sits atop the Fangraphs positional power rankings published this week. Just providing a little variety in your podcast feed. Meant to mention at the top that there had also been a couple of Giants injuries since we did our NL West preview. We talked about our concerns about the Giants staying healthy and the depth that they had. Well, Evan Longoria and Lamont Wade are both hurt now and will be missing opening day. Doesn't sound super serious, but kind of concerning. And when discussing potential rules changes, I should have mentioned that MLB had proposed some changes related to sign stealing. I don't believe that they have been accepted or ratified yet, but MLB has proposed prohibiting batters from reviewing scouting cards or information during an at-bat. So you can't take a card out of your helmet while you're at the plate. Beginning with the first pitch of the game, club personnel may not print any scouting information for the purposes of providing it to on-field club personnel during the game. So you can't print and deliver information mid-game to the dugout. And MLB proposed permitting pitchers and catchers to use the wireless pitch comm device on a voluntary basis. It's been tested in spring training. Just proposals. Don't think the union has responded yet. I am very much in favor of the electronic pitch calling device. And I'm on the fence about the in-game cards too. So I don't hate this. And you've probably seen it by now. But we did discuss on an earlier episode this spring, Siyoshi Shinjo. The new manager of the Nippon Ham Fighters, who has officially changed his display name with the league, to Big Boss. He is just going by Big Boss officially now. And he also entered the ceremony before the first game on a hovercraft. He also caught a ceremonial first pitch with his bare hand, and then ran it back out to the mound to hand it to the pitcher. Every day brings some new hijinks for Shinjo. Though I'm not sure it's brought a fighter's win yet. I know they started the season on a losing streak. But hey, if you're not going to be great, might as well have a zany manager. Maybe the Pirates should look into that idea. I'll also give a shout out to Effectively Wild listener and Reddit user MattO2000, who posted a thread on the baseball subreddit titled, Do Scott Boris's Puns Net His Clients More Money? An Analysis. I assume this was inspired by our recent discussion of the same subject on the podcast because he did tag me in it. I wouldn't say it's a scientific investigation, but it is an entertaining one, so I'll link to that on the show page. And lastly, closing the loop on a previous stat blast about ghost players 
who don't touch the ball during the game or players who have the ball hit to them constantly during the game. Listener and Patreon supporter Ted did ask how long a catcher has gone consecutive fielding events without touching the ball. And frequent stat blast consultant Ryan Nelson has provided an answer to that question. Best he can determine, it appears to be 10 fielding events. On June 3rd, 1998, and I should note that we only have pitch-by-pitch data going back so far to 88 in most cases, but on June 3rd, 98, the A's were playing the Rangers. In the bottom of the seventh, there was a three-pitch inning, which some have called a minimum inning, but that was not part of the streak. Pudge Rodriguez was catching that half of the frame, but then top of the eighth, Mike McFarland was catching, and he did become a ghost catcher. There was a first-pitch triple to Pudge, a first-pitch 4-3 ground out, a first-pitch RBI single to center, a first-pitch fly out to left, a first-pitch 6-4 ground out, then in the top of the ninth, a two-pitch 5-3 grounder, the first pitch was a foul ball, followed by a first-pitch single, a first-pitch single, a first-pitch fly out, and a first-pitch error on the third baseman. And then the streak finally ended with a three-pitch, three-swing strikeout. So, if you're wondering, how many plate appearances can a catcher go during a game consecutively without touching the ball, it appears to be 10. Of course, that is assuming that we're not counting the fact that he may have had to throw a new ball to the pitcher after that one foul ball. But as Ryan said, we are going to pretend that that doesn't count. Thank you, Ryan. We will be back with an AL West preview next time. Until then, though, you can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. And you've got to do it because we had a cancellation this week by one Meg Rowley, who just realized that she was still a Patreon supporter of Effectively Wild all this time. So come on, folks, there's no excuse. One of the co-hosts of the podcast was sponsoring us on Patreon for years. So if she can do it, surely you can. There's a little tab we can click on on the Patreon site that shows exit surveys where people who discontinue their Patreon support for whatever reason can provide a reason if they choose. And mostly it's my financial circumstances change. Sorry, still like the show. But today I happen to see the latest cancellation from Meg Rowley. And the only reason listed is, and literally, Meg Rowley. Very valid reason. If you want to replace Meg's support, And again, get yourself access to some perks and help us keep doing the pod and help us stay ad-free. You can follow the example of the following five listeners, Doug W., J.J. Evans, Christopher Swanson, Bobby Lightweight, and Stephen K. Robinson. Thanks to all of you. Please keep your questions and comments for me and Meg coming via email at podcast.fangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod. You can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance, and we will be back with another episode a little later this week. Talk to you then.